0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area.
1: Our study is the Sixth Commandment expressed in only four words, In Exodus 20 verse 13, thou shalt not kill. Those are only four words, but they express the highest order of respect that we can give outside of our respect for God. This is the respect for the sanctity of life, that God is the creator of all life, all life belongs to Him, He gives it, and He is the only one who has the right to take it away. And no one is to take life from another human being in an unlawful way, that is, without God's permission, in the way that he specifically describes that it can be taken in his word. Now we noticed uh, the last time, this is part number two of the message on the sanctity of life, and we noticed in the last message that we live in a time when there is more a culture of death than there is of life. Instead of exhausting all the efforts that we can in order to preserve life, we found ways that we can get rid of undesirables. And that ranges from unwanted babies in the womb, to the old and to the infirm, to the handicapped and to the inconvenient. And what we've done is to make ourselves the judges and the jury of who has the right to life. Our children have grown up with abortion rights, and ballot measures for taking life. The decision of life and death is simply a matter of public opinion. That if the affirm are not productive, then what we need to do is just cast the vote and life vanishes. And we say that we are in favor of life, but actually we value life only when it is to our best advantage. Life is not ours to do with as we please. This, this commandment says that we are not to kill, and that is because all life belongs to God. And only He has the right to say when it will end. Now, in today's message, I want to expand uh, on our discussion from the last time on this phrase, Thou shalt not kill. And as I mentioned earlier in the 10 o'clock hour, I don't know, I don't think that I've ever preached a message... Uh, specifically on what we're going to talk about today. We're going to to talk about some things that I I may include in a message every now and then, but not comprehensively have we ever looked at this particular part of this command. Now, going back to last week, just to kind of refresh you a little bit on where we are, is that we first of all talked about the crime of murder. And it helps us to understand the command if we know what is meant by the word kill, In verse number 13, that word has a very specific meaning in Scripture. You'll notice that in modern translations that they substitute the word murder for the word kill, and that is an accurate translation of the Hebrew word. Other types of killing that are not what this word means is the thing that I want to talk to you about in the next few minutes. The author of murder is Satan... His temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden led to the fall of man. And in a very short period of time, man did the very worst that he could do. As if to hit us in the head with a two-by-four, God shows us that people are capable of doing the worst to each other. The, The sin nature is demonstrated in the first part of Genesis, not by building up with many, many lesser sins that the Bible mentions... But the first thing that we see there, coming to Genesis chapter 4, is the very worst that man can do to another person. It's the crime of murder. Adam's first child killed his second child. Cain killed Abel. That's because spiritual life was ruined in the fall, and the result of that was the taking of physical life. And a close examination of this shows that when the first table of the law is broken, those first four commandments, that breaking all of the commandments are going to follow shortly thereafter. And so when we disobey God in the first, we can't keep the second. If we don't love God with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind, then neither can we love our neighbor as ourselves. This law works both ways. The, the whole law is comprehensive. You can't keep the first part and, and, and or not keep the first part and keep the second part. You can't keep the second part and not keep the first part. It all works together. The author of disobedience in the first and the second tables of the law is Satan, and murder is his calling card. Jesus said in John 10, verse 10, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. That thief that he speaks of is Satan. Jesus is the one who gives life, and Satan steals it away. Now, this command says that we are not to kill. But it doesn't explain the rationale for why we should not kill. In Genesis chapter 1, the Creator tells us why we should never murder another person. Uh, God says, or the Bible says, that man was created in the image of God. In Genesis 9, verse 6, it says, You shall not shed blood, because God made man in His image. And that's really the crux of the entire matter, that in every person, no matter what your opinion of that person is, there is the image of God. And when you attack a person to harm him, you are attacking God. When people murder babies in the womb, they are attacking God. That tears at the morality of God's law as if our way is the standard of judgment. If we kill other human beings, we not only break the second table of the law, but we break the first because we deny God's authority. Now, I'd like us to step a little bit further into the meaning of this command with our second observation, and that is the contrast to murder. The King James Version, which is the translation that most of us learned the Ten Commandments from, says, Thou shalt not kill. And without knowing the meaning of the original word in the Hebrew, that very specific meaning that I mentioned a moment ago, this commandment has become a rallying cry against all kinds of killing, regardless of whether it's murder. In other words, they say that this command says that we're not to take another, or we say rather, that we're not to take this, another person's life unlawfully, but they say there's no way that you can take another person's life morally. And they say that the moral standard requires us to be against killing of all kinds, which actually leads to some untenable positions when compared to other texts of Scripture. And not only are they untenable, but misinterpreting this command becomes very degrading to the seriousness of its intent and the justice of God. And if people are right about this, that there is no way that another life can be taken when we look at God's law, that is to make God at odds with Himself. And so today we have other scenarios where life can be taken, and in some cases the Bible says it should be taken in a lawful manner. But we're confronted with activists who have different opinions, and we need to know what the Bible says, because the Bible is always going to be the standard of faith and practice. If we take the force out of God's law and replace that with human reasoning, then we do irreparable harm to God's moral structure. So are there lawful ways that God says that a life can be taken? Well, before I tell you what they are, you need to mark this well, that before a life can be taken by command, a very serious sin has to have happened. Something horrible has to have taken place. Sin has to have raised its head to its, in, a, in the ultimate extent of its ugliness so that The only way to defeat it for the common good is to take an individual's life of the person who is guilty. Now, this leads us, if you're ahead of me a little bit in the discussion, this leads us into a discussion of capital punishment. Some people advocate against capital punishment, and they don't care what the Bible says about it, because they're not arguing for or against biblical authority. They have their own reasons for it, and so they would never try to use the Bible to uh, be the proof of their position. But there are many others that do, and invariably they go straight to this command in the King James Version where it says, Thou shalt not kill. That's what they use as the support for uh, for their opposition to capital punishment. But I've already showed you in the last message that the context of the 13th verse, the Bible never uses the word here that's used kill, the word kill, in any verse of Scripture that deals with capital punishment. And so if we kill a criminal, we've not murdered him, we've not violated this commandment. Now as recently as our last election, there was a ballot measure against capital punishment that failed. America has almost become a pariah to the Western world because of the death penalty. And so we need to ask ourselves a question. Are we wrong about it? Or do we have strong biblical footing for our belief that we should exercise capital punishment? And I can show you that both the Old and the New Testament support capital punishment. Now, while other countries believe that we are barbaric, and in fact that we are less respectful of life than they are, the Bible actually teaches that it is the duty of of our government to enforce capital punishment as a way to uphold the sanctity of life. Sometimes I wonder how opponents in this country and in Europe can take what they think is the high moral ground against the death penalty, and yet at the same time they're the loudest, For the right to kill innocent babies in the womb. So how do you reason that out? A guilty criminal gets to live, but an innocent baby in the womb must die. Is that insane inconsistency? So what does the Bible say about this? Well, let's turn to Genesis, and let's take a, a look at a verse that I referred to earlier. In the ninth chapter, God spoke to Noah after he got off of the ark. And it shouldn't escape our attention that God had just destroyed every living person in the world except eight people. That was Noah and his family. And these eight people are the ones who would repopulate the earth. And in this chapter, God gave Noah rules that would be good for the new society. He had just taken out guilty lives uh, and preserved righteous life. And this chapter is a precedent for instructions to Noah, how the society uh, should be. And this is what God says in verses 5 and 6. He says, "...and surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it. At the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed." For in the image of God made he man. God said that he required retribution if a man takes the life of another man. Now the penalty for breaking the command is the death penalty. So wouldn't it be self-defeating to say that capital punishment is outlawed by the command? Is God illogical in what he says? Or is it people that have the problem? Not only were murderers to be executed... But there in those verses, it said that if an animal kills a man, that animal is to be killed. Both of those requirements made it into the law of Mount Sinai. Life is so precious to God that He even says to you that you are responsible for the animals that you own. And you're not to be careless about them and their temperament in harming people. He said, if you have an ox that's known to gore, to push people with its horns, and that ox kills someone because you were not careful to pin him in for another's protection, then your life should be taken. Now, I want you to hold your place where you are right now. Let me read this to you, because we might as well take care of it while we're here. That And it comes just one chapter after the Ten Commandments in the 21st chapter of Exodus. God says, If an ox gore a man or a woman that they die, then the ox shall be surely stoned, and his flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall be quit. But listen... But if the ox were wont to push with his horn, in time past, and it hath been testified to his owner, and he hath not kept him in, but he hath killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and the owner also shall be put to death. Let me comment on that for just a minute. And some of you might not like what I have to say, but if you have a dog like a pit bull, and you know that that dog will bite... And you don't keep the dog away from people and it gets loose and it bites someone or it mauls a child and kills him. The verse says that you are guilty of murder. And it says that the dog should be killed and you also should be killed. But our hypocritical society doesn't see it that way. They don't value life as God does. And so I would suppose that if you owned a dog breed that could kill somebody and you really valued life, that you would never let that animal loose in your neighborhood, that you would never take a chance like that. And you can argue with me about that, but I think I've got the Bible on my side here. God values life, and you'll value it too if you go by God's rules. Now, go back to Genesis chapter 9. Is capital punishment here? Well, of course it is. In verse 6, it says, If a man kills another man his life shall be taken for that man's life. So let's kind of follow it through just a little bit in other verses of Scripture. You go over to Exodus 21, to the chapter I read from just a moment ago. And in verse number 12, it says, He that smiteth a man so that he die, he shall surely be put to death. Verse 14, But if a man presumptuously uh, come presumptuously upon his neighbor to slay him with guile, Thou shalt take him from mine altar that he may die. In the 22nd chapter, let's look at another verse. And before I even read this, there will some of you that will say right on to this. Exodus 22, verse 2. If a thief be found breaking up and be smitten that he die, there shall be no blood shed for him. Now that's telling us if a person breaks into your house at night and you feel threatened by him, and you think that your life is threatened, then go ahead and shoot him. Kill him. And it says, nobody's going to be charged for it. Now, of course, if you're going to shoot him, you've got to own a gun. And if you don't have one, then I suppose you'd have to gut him. uh, And that'd be one less thief to worry about. But before you start shooting everybody and stabbing everybody that, that looks threatening, don't forget the next verse to read it also. Because it says, if the sun be risen upon him, there shall be blood shed for him. If you kill him, there shall be blood shed for him. For he should make full restitution. If he have nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So that means if he steals from you in the daytime, probably he doesn't have the intent to harm anybody. And so if you shoot him, it says you have murdered him. Now we go to Leviticus 24, verse number 17. And he that killeth any man surely, shall surely be put to death. And I could just go on and on and on. We can find many, many... Old Testament examples of how people murdered others and they were put to death. But of course you know that the objection will be that this is Old Testament law. And the argument goes that Jesus changed the law. And Jesus' teachings are about living in peace. And they're much different from what you read in the Old Testament. And they say that even though Jesus never claimed to change any of the Old Testament's moral law. But instead we find in the New Testament the expectation that justice will be done by enforcing capital punishment. Now the passage that most bothers people is the one in which Jesus said that you are to turn the other cheek. But Jesus was not speaking of the right of the government to enforce capital punishment, he was teaching that we are not trying to, try to avenge ourselves for personal offenses. And the context of all of that is what we call lex talionis, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And he was teaching against what the Pharisees did, where they sought revenge on people as a personal matter. They were trying to get back at people and harm them. And the real teaching of Scripture is this whole thing belongs to the government to enforce punishment against people, the civil law. So how do we know that's true? Well, we only need to go to the rest of the New Testament where there are men like the Apostle Paul who wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and expanded on Jesus' teachings. I was surprised in my studies to read that Campbell Morgan, a very good Bible expositor, uh, looked at the Ten Commandments and on this one he opposed capital punishment. And he said that God never delegates to another the right to take life. And I wonder why he didn't consider the next thing that we're going to read. Let's turn to Romans chapter 13. Why he didn't read this is a mystery. Romans chapter 13. Let's see how God expects the government to act. Civil magistrates are there to protect the welfare of the people. That's part of the job of our government. Romans 13 verse number 3 to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Now you look at that and you say, well, why is the sword mentioned? Because the sword is the instrument of death. The government is to use the sword, or that is to use a means of execution, to put to death those who murder. Now there happen to be other crimes that are... Considered to be capital crimes. I'm not going to talk about those as we talk about this commandment. But one thing we surely know from this. Is that capital punishment is supported by this verse. Then going back to the Old Testament. The law did not let the government off. With all kinds of arguments that can be made against taking another's life. Numbers 35 verse 31. It says moreover ye shall take no satisfaction for the life of a murderer. Which is guilty of death. But he shall be surely put to death. And ye shall take no satisfaction for him that has fled to the city of his refuge, that he should come again to dwell in the land until the death of the priest. So ye shall not pollute the land wherein ye are, for blood it defileth the land. And the land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. Defile not therefore the land which ye shall inhabit wherein I dwell." For I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. He said, you shall not take satisfaction for the life of a murderer." In other words, he says, you cannot bargain your way out of this. The family, or his friends, or him, or anybody else, cannot offer something other than a life for restitution. Parole and plea bargainings are not to be accepted. Life in prison without parole is not an option. The only bargain that could be accepted is you might bargain for the way that you'll die. Will it be by will it be by hanging or will it be by the firing squad? Murder defiles the land that's what God says. Murders are to be removed. I could give you a whole sermon on this subject. We could just go on and on talking about capital punishment. Capital punishment is supported by both testaments. Even when dying on the cross, Jesus made no argument against the thief who turned to him and said, you do not deserve to die, but we do. However, arguments are made. The chief one against capital punishment is that it's not a deterrent to murder. Well, it certainly is to the one who killed someone because he's not going to do it again. The primary reason for the death penalty, though, is not to be a deterrent. The primary purpose is punishment. You're going to be punished for doing wrong. But we'd still have to ask the question, is it a deterrent? John Stuart Hill argued for the death penalty in the 18th century against those who made the same claim, that it's not a deterrent. And he said that capital punishment does not deter the hardened criminal, but it certainly will the average criminal and the normal citizen. Now, one other point here. The Bible says that a murder is worthy of death. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. So, the one who kills gets his just reward. The just reward is to take his life. He is worthy of death. California voters rarely do the smart thing. But they did in the last election. We passed a law... To speed up death cases. Now the death penalty is never a deterrent to anyone that is charged and convicted of a crime, the crime of murder, if he dies in his old age before he ever gets to the electric chair or the, the needle or whatever they use to kill him. Yes, the, the costs are enormous for keeping people on death row, so let's just make justice swift. Let's let's do it. That's the godly principle. In fact, this is what Ecclesiastes 8 verse 11 says. Because sentence against an evil work is not ex- executed speedily, therefore the heart of the Son of Men is fully set on them to do evil. Now secondly, the sixth, sixth commandment does not prohibit war. Does that surprise you? The sixth commandment does not prohibit war. This commandment is not about killing in war. But the rallying cry of the pacifist is, Thou shalt not kill. But we have to ask, does a pacifist have case from this commandment? Well, I would remind you that immediately following this commandment, Israel resumed their march to the promised land. And in Deuteronomy, before they entered the promised land, these same laws were repeated. Moses reminded them of what God said. And do you know what they were about to do? They were getting ready for an extended period of war as they went in to fight against the Canaanites and to take the land that God had promised them. And in order to do that, there had to be strict obedience to these very commands that God gave. This is the key to victory. Israel was preparing for many, many years of warfare. Obviously, then, the Bible makes a case for war. Now, I'm talking about a just war. A just war. If you're fighting people to gain territory to enslave them, that's not just warfare. Now, in modern warfare, if we need to kill in order to liberate from oppression, that is called just warfare. Nations and citizens must be protected, and so warfare is permitted. Now, I want to show you a couple of interesting examples from the New Testament There is, of course, plenty of warfare in the Old Testament, but again, invariably, somebody will say, well, the Old Testament is not a pattern for us. We're to use the New Testament, and the New Testament changes the Old Testament. So let's just take a look at that. But before we do, uh, there was a, a comment that struck me when I was studying this. There was one theologian that said in warfare that there must be a recognition of the difference between soldiers and civilians. That is, between combatants and non-combatants. Now, admittedly, that's going to strain our perception of warfare because we're used to a term that is called collateral damage. Killing civilians is collateral damage, and we know that sometimes that's unavoidable in modern warfare. Now, it used to be that armies would go out and march against one another in the field, and it was only the two armies that were out there. And the soldiers in those two armies would fight each other to the death, and whoever won, that was it. But we don't fight that way any longer. That's not modern warfare. In World War II, the war in the Pacific theater was ended when the atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Now, that's usually considered to be the worst civilian collateral damage that has ever happened because it's estimated that 225,000 people were killed in those bombings, and it was over like that. In an instant, people were killed. America knew the kind of devastation that would happen when it dropped those bombs on those two cities, but there was this argument that a quicker end to the war would save more lives than if they let the war to go on and didn't use those bombs. And the really interesting thing about this, uh, when you think about civilian loss of life, is what happened in the European theater in that war. When the Allies constantly bombed the city of Dresden, Germany, which was a a place that had very little uh, military significance, they dropped so many incendiary bombs on that over a longer period of time that there were actually more civilians killed there than there were in the bombs that were dropped on Japan. So we're faced with a big question here. What is a just war? How much collateral damage is allowed? That's difficult for us. But this we know... The Bible doesn't call war murder. It doesn't put that in the same classification. We don't break this command in warfare when it's just warfare. And so if a suicide bomber uh, straps on a vest with the intention of killing civilians in the name of his heathen God, that is murder. When we strike back against that and we want to protect the innocent, we can call it war if we want. Or we can call it retributive justice. Either way, that's all right. Yes, we are at war, I think, with Islam, and yes, we are punishing murderers when we go against those countries that kill innocent people. Now, here are a couple of interesting notations from the New Testament that were very good opportunities to teach that war is murder. The first one is in the ministry of John the Baptist. I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 3, where John baptized And he baptized with the baptism of repentance, and there were many that came to him to be baptized. The self-righteous Pharisees came, and he told them that their Jewish heritage would not save them, that they must repent. In verse number 12, the tax collectors came, and Jesus, or rather John the Baptist, told them to repent and stop stealing from the people. And then we look at verse number 14. And the soldiers, likewise, soldiers, likewise, demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. Now the soldiers said, We see what you've told others to do, so what are we to do? Now let's be careful about the response. He said, Do violence to no man. And we do need to understand the context of that statement. Roman soldiers were often known for their cruelty. People were afraid of them. They threatened to take property away. They falsely informed on people in order to enrich themselves. They were not content with their wages, and so they would extort and they would steal. So John said, don't do that. Don't accuse people falsely. Don't steal from them. Be satisfied with your wages. Now look at that very carefully. Be satisfied or be content with your wages. The wages of what? A soldier. Isn't this a perfect place for John to say to soldiers, if you're going to repent and be saved, then the thing that you need to do is lay down your arms. Desert the army. Stop being a soldier. Don't go to war anymore. Don't be a party a party to murder. Now, wouldn't you have to do that if you were going to repent? If war is murder, thou shalt not kill, then how do you keep the command for the sanctity of life? You'd have to repent and stop if war is murder. But that's not the context that we find in Genesis chapter 20, verse 13. Now, similarly, the Lord Jesus treated soldiers in the same way. Now, this this ought to be comfort for anybody who served in the armed forces, served in war, if you have... Friends and relatives that are in the armed forces today, and they have to do this. So let's see how Jesus treated soldiers. Turn over to chapter 7, Luke chapter 7. Here Jesus was approached to help a man who was a centurion in the Roman army. He was a man of authority, and he had reached the position of being a centurion because they were known as lean, mean, fighting machines. They were the ablest, bravest soldiers of the Roman army. This centurion had a servant that he wanted Jesus to heal. Now the Jews defended the man. Look at verse numbers 4 and 5. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Jesus decided that he would help. He started toward this man's house to heal his servant. And there was a conversation that ensued in which this man showed uncommon faith and belief in Jesus' authority. This is how the conversation ended in verse number 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Now would Jesus have said that about a murderer? Would he say that this man is a man of great faith, a better faith than he'd found anywhere in Israel? Wouldn't he rather say, now here's the thing, if you want my help, then you've got to resign your post. You've got to stop fighting. You've got to stop being in the Roman army and killing people in war, and then I'll help you. But that's not what he said. He said he'd never seen greater faith in Israel. And then what about Jesus in Revelation? There he's the writer On the white horse in chapter 19. And it says that he's going to gather all nations to battle at Armageddon. And there's going to be a war. And there will be bloodshed greater than all the bloodshed of all wars combined of all time. And it describes for us a river of blood that will flow for 200 miles. People can call Jesus a lot of things. You can't call him a pacifist. The peace that Jesus talked about was the peace of salvation, the peace of salvation in Him and the peace of rest that we will have when? When all of His enemies are defeated. The commandment has nothing to do with capital punishment or with war. We can't use it for that. Now thirdly, this commandment is not against self-defense. A long time ago I got into an argument with a Christian man who believed that self-defense was wrong. He didn't like a discussion that we had on gun control, and he didn't like my opinion that we should be able to defend ourselves when our lives are threatened. He was a turn-the-other-cheek sort of guy, not understanding what Jesus meant by that statement, as I explained just a few minutes ago. So he disagreed with this. Now, in the scripture that we read from earlier, in Exodus 20, verse 2 verse 2, it said there that if a, a thief is found breaking up at night, it's okay to kill him. Now, why would it tell us that? Well, because it's assumed that that man has come in under the cover of darkness and that he intends to do you harm. And if you're afraid for your life, and if you're afraid for the life of your family, then you do whatever's necessary in order to protect them. That's the sanctity of life. This is logical. I mean, would would you allow a murderer to kill innocent people and save his life, the life of the murderer, instead of the life of the innocent? Where is there justice in any court, or especially in God's court, for foolish judgment? If you can protect another innocent life, which the Bible says that you can do, then why can't you protect your own innocent life? You don't want to try to pit the Bible against itself. It, 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 it never contradicts, the New Testament never contradicts Old Testament law. So we can just stop being armchair theologians. The Bible says we are to judge righteous judgment. Turning the other cheek is not talking about life-threatening situations. Jesus said there's going to be a time when his people will need to take up the sword. So if your family is threatened, something's wrong with you. Something's wrong with your thinking if you don't try to defend them. This is a command that makes it our first duty to preserve the sanctity of life. So it says, if you have to take a life of a person who tries to take your life unjustly, that is not murder. That does not break this commandment. Now quickly, stay with me. This command is not talking about accidents. That's our fourth thing. It's not talking about accidents. So let's talk about accidents for a moment. Not carelessness. Because you can be charged for carelessness, not for an accident. And so if a pedestrian steps out in front of your car, you're obeying all of the traffic laws, and you didn't have time to respond, and you run over that person, that's not murder. Now, we, we had a case here, right here in Roanoke, Park, uh, just a couple, three or four years ago, I don't remember exactly how long it was, of a young lady who was a college student, I believe, at Sonoma State, and she was texting as she was driving down the street, and there was a, a a woman and her child that were crossing the street with a with a stroller, and she ran over them and killed them. That's carelessness with human life, and the Bible says you'll be charged for that. Now, this interesting is in Deuteronomy 19, verses four and five, and this is the case of the slayer which shall flee thither that he may live. Whoso killeth his neighbor ignorantly, whom he hath hated not in time past. As when a man goeth into the wood with his neighbor to hew wood, and his hand fetcheth a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree, and the head slippeth from the helve and lighteth upon his neighbor that he die, he shall flee unto one of those cities. Talking about the cities of refuge. He shall flee there and live. So it says, if a man's cutting wood, and the axe head flies off of the handle, and it strikes someone and kills them, he's not guilty of murder. But if that axe head came off four or five times in the past, and he couldn't keep it on. And he's got people around, and he swings that axe, and off goes the head and kills somebody. That's a different story. Now we're talking about manslaughter. Now there's another case in the Scripture that says that if two men are fighting, and they hurt a nearby woman, and she dies, then they're guilty of murder. Why? Because they shouldn't have been fighting. What they did was they broke the entire table... The second table of the law that says you are to love your neighbor. And in the process, they took a human life. And he says they can be charged for that. Now, the main point of this is that a pure accident is just that. It's an accident. There is no intent. There is no carelessness. It can't be helped if the person is innocent. Now, I want to give you just one more. And this is necessary because of... Today's warped understanding of God's creation. This command, thou shalt not kill, does not apply to animals. I had somebody ask me this question not long ago. They were particularly interested in this part of the command. What about killing of animals? Is that part of this command? Well, somebody called PETA now, and you you tell them that we're about to talk about them. Killing an animal is not murder. Murder. Now, in some cases, it may be cruelty, but it's not murder, and it's not prohibited by this command. Back to Genesis chapter 9, Noah got off the ark, and God said to him, Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herbs have I given you all things. Before the flood, people ate only green stuff. It was plants and vegetables all of the time. After the flood, God said, well, that's enough of vegetarianism. You can eat animals too. And perhaps you've heard the saying, people are animals too. No, people are not animals too. Or animals are not people too. That's the way I should say it, I guess. If you eat an animal, you're not a cannibal. And and if you euthanize an animal, that's not wrong. You euthanize a human, it is wrong. Animals are not made in the image of God. People are. Now, you see, there's a great problem with many animal rights act- activists. They, they, they say that animals have rights because all that an animal is is a lesser developed human. Or we say it in another way, humans are just highly developed animals. That's evolution in a nutshell. That we're nothing but a bunch of animals. And if you think that way, then I guess you could probably come up with the idea that animals have rights. But no, animals don't have rights. We were created, and they were created, but we were created differently. Man was created in the image of God. That is, is, he has will, he has emotions, he has rationality, he has morality. Animals were not created the same. Do animals have souls? Well, if they do, they have a lesser quality of soul than humans. And here's what happens. If you get humans and animals confused, you will degrade the sanctity of human life. If you bring a person down to the animal level, then you'll never treat him in the way that God treats him. I've even heard this. Some people say, good animals go to heaven. What? What's a good animal? I mean, good people, good people don't even go to heaven when they think that they're good. The Bible teaches that Christ died to redeem man, that he's the preserver of human life. God gave us cows for food to preserve human life. McDonald's is a divinely ordained institution, or at at least In-N-Out is because they got scripture verses on their cups, so we know that it has to be from God. So let's not get confused about this. If you have the choice of saving a human or a cat in a burning building, what do you do? If you choose the cat, something's wrong with you. Several months ago, I heard this terrible story. There was a woman, a woman's apartment that caught fire, uh, and in that apartment there were two children and her dog. And she had a choice to make. She had only time to save either the kids or the dog, and she chose to save the dog first. And the kids died in the fire. That's a person who deserves the death penalty. Now don't misunderstand this command. God values human life. He protects human life. And for the good of all society... Human life can be taken when necessary. When it's lawfully done according to the Word of God, it should be done. But let's always remember this as well, that as I said earlier, when sin raises its ugly head, that's what it's going to take. And what we need to do is to have Jesus to save us from our sins, that Jesus values lives that are made in His image, and Jesus does not want people to lose their lives. And so he died to save them. And if you believe he died to save you, then you can know that he did by trusting him today. Now next time we're going to come back to this, and I want to show you that as good as we think that we are, and most people do, they think they're so good, and they'll look at this sixth command and they'll say, well, there's one that I've never done That I'm okay with this one. The Sixth Commandment doesn't bother me. Let's go on to the others and talk about them. But I want to show you that all of us are guilty of breaking the Sixth Commandment. We're guilty of breaking it in the explanation that Jesus gave of it. And Jesus said all of us are stone cold killers. And what we need is to be saved from that. So we're going to look at that the next time. What did Jesus have to say about this command? Are we Still guilty of it, even though we haven't actually physically taken a human life. That's a very interesting prospect, isn't it? Are we guilty of murder? Jesus says that we are. We'll talk about that the next time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now confessing our sins. Looking at this commandment, we see it's like all the others, that we're not able to do it as we should that we're guilty from top to bottom of all of these commandments. None of them are easy for us. No human could ever keep them. Only Jesus could do it perfectly. And Lord, we thank you that we can turn to you and put our faith in you and the righteousness that you earned by living a perfect life on this earth can be transferred to us, imputed to us by faith in you. And that's what it's going to take. So let's don't let us sit here, Lord, and just think about what others do all the time and condemn what others have done, and think about the criminal that sits in prison and the terrible thing that he has done. But may we all see ourselves also as guilty sinners before you, and before we condemn another person, to condemn our ourselves to look into our own heart and see what we're that we're capable. Just like Cain was capable of killing Abel. So are we capable of the worst sins that are imaginable. And we may fall into them if we don't know Jesus Christ is our Savior. And those sins that we have done, we need you to save us from them and save us from this continued life of sin that we live. And none of us is perfect. And so we have to depend upon you. Speak to our hearts today, Lord. Help us to understand the truth as we look at your Word and apply it to ourselves, not to others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally,